Well, good evening. Thank you for making it all the way over here to Bethany Bible Church. It's a pleasure to be with you this evening. Uh, I think that Pastor Lance pretty much asked every other person in the church first before he asked me to cover for him. But uh, it is a privilege and uh, it is my joy to bring God's Word before you this evening. Well, brothers and sisters, please turn with me in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, we'll be looking at tonight. I have always loved John the Baptist. There's just something about him that I find myself coming back to time and time again. My name is Shane, which in Irish Gaelic is really the form of John. And so I have a a special connection with John the Baptist as well. We kind of share a similar name. So um, it's kind of just a a, a connection I have. Um, I've always loved learning about him. I've always loved reading uh, passages of scripture about him. I always loved thinking about just his faithfulness as a man working behind the scenes. He was a man who was uh, sent and commissioned by the Lord to do a very specific task. And as soon as his task was done, it was end scene, exit left. And uh, just as he said to his disciples, I must decrease and the Lord Jesus must increase. As we know, John the Baptist literally decreased. He, he lost his head. And that was it. And I, I, so there's, there's just something I love about that. He did exactly what he was supposed to do, and that was it. He was humble, he was a servant, and he fulfilled his, his mission, he fulfilled his ministry, and that was it. So that's why I, I bring before you Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, uh, a passage that is near and dear to my heart. Um, we're going to be looking at tonight the, the first few days of the ministry of John the Baptist as he fulfills the earlier part of his ministry as the forerunner to the Savior, the forerunner to the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, and then we're going to open in prayer, and we'll get started. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down And thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your help this evening. I ask for your help as we open your word. This is your inerrant, infallible, inspired word straight from you. Lord, we thank you for um, just our church. We thank you for our pastors. I pray that as they're away from us, just like Jim prayed this morning, Lord, that you would rejuvenate them and give them strength and, and bring them back to us refreshed. We thank you that we have a chance to meet again this evening and and open your word and dig deep into what it has for us. Lord, uh, may nothing uh, that I say be dishonoring to you, and and may I speak clearly to this beloved congregation of ours, Lord. We love you. May our time be honoring and pleasing to you this evening, we pray. Amen. And so, we open with this passage. Now, if you're taking notes, I want to make things uh, as easy as possible for you, okay? Here it is. So we have 12 verses. We're going to be looking at what is true repentance. We're going to be contrasting true repentance 
with false repentance or pseudo-repentance. Repentance that looks like real repentance, but it's really not. Okay? So, true repentance and pseudo-repentance. Verses 1 through 6 looks at what true repentance looks like. Verses 1 through 6. And then verses 7 through 12 delves into what false repentance looks like and what pseudo-repentance is and how we can be wary of that and careful of that in our own walk with the Lord. So we're going to start now with the theme, the message of true repentance. Before we jump in, a quick, a quick word of context. Where are we? Where are we in the Gospels? Where are we in the Bible? What is this Gospel talking about? Well, Many of you probably know this, but the theme of the book of Matthew is that Jesus is the king. Okay? That's the theme. That's the whole point of of Matthew's message is Jesus is the king. The king was promised. He's here. He's here to do what he's supposed to do, and that pretty much covers the entire book. Okay? So Jesus is the king. This is our theme of the book. Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, gives us the immediate context of what we're talking about. Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, talks about immediately after the birth of Jesus, right? There's the threat from Herod, and in a dream, the Lord sends Joseph and his family to, the, to Egypt to be, to be safe from Herod. And it says uh, in verse 22, But when he, that's, that's Joseph, heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, who had died, uh, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he, re, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Verse 23, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene, he being his son, Jesus. Now, there's a really important note here, and I think it's really obvious, but it's important to note that there's a 30-year gap between verse 23 and the beginning of chapter 3. How do I know that? Well, it says in chapter 3, verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching, right? John the Baptist was mere months older than Jesus, so it couldn't have happened immediately, we know that John the Baptist's ministry began just a little bit before Jesus' ministry. There's a 30-some-odd-year gap here between chapters 2 and 3. It's not a mistake. It's all part of the plan. But it is there, okay? So now we, now we jump into verse 1 of chapter 3. We're looking at the message of true repentance. And in verse 1, we see the context of John's message. The context of John's message. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What is the significance of this? Well, John the Baptist, as we know, was the promised prophet. He was promised to come, and here he is. There's, there's no mistake here. He's doing his job, and it's all part of the plan. It's important to note that John the Baptist himself knew who Jesus was. He knew who his cousin was. It's, uh, it's very interesting to see their relationship and how they work together, and yet and yet, John the Baptist was, was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah himself, just like the people who he was reaching out to and who he was preaching to. So he came preaching where? Why is it significant that he is in the wilderness? Couldn't he have come to the center of town and been preaching from the rooftops? Why is it significant that he came preaching in the wilderness? Well, there's a long history of prophets in Israel and Judah who did not go into the city, but rather stayed in the wilderness. Uh, There's a lot of of pointing back to the people of Israel having been in the wilderness for those 40 years, and where they had met God at Sinai, and they received the Ten Commandments. And and the the wilderness for the people of Israel holds some some very significant moments in their history. And so John the Baptist is not coming into the cities. He's not a Pharisee. He's not a teacher of the law. He is completely separate from all of them. And he's in the wilderness. So if he's in the wilderness and everyone else is in the towns, everyone else are in the towns, what do they have to do? Well, we're going to see in a few verses here that they had to go out to him. They had to travel from where they were to go out into the wilderness to meet him where he was. Put a little bookmark there. It's really important, okay? We've seen the context. He's in the wilderness. We know uh, who he has come to talk to. We know who is the one who is preaching, John the Baptist. But what is the content of his message? Is it a complex message? No, it's not. It's really quite simple. Here's what he says, verse 2. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's stop real quick. Let's, let's dive into repentance. What does repentance mean? 
Does repentance mean feeling bad for your sin and just trying not to do it anymore? Does repentance mean, you know, I've been going this way, and I have to just stop going that way? I've got to make a change here. I'm going to make a 90-degree a turn here and just sort of run parallel to my sin. Is that what it means? Not at all. Not at all. What does the word repentance mean? It means a 180. It means to turn. I'm going this way. That's where my sin is. That's been the, the track record of my life. And I, I can't just turn this way or that way. I have to do a, a, a complete 180 and head in the opposite direction. In fact, it's perfect that the cross is right behind me. Right? That's exactly where I need to go. So when John is using this word repent, the people who he's talking to know exactly what he's talking about. Turn from your sins. That is probably, along with uh, God of the covenant and, and, and reaching his people in the Old Testament, that is one of the biggest themes in the whole Old Testament. Children of Israel, you who I love, I'm your God. Turn from your sins. And if you don't, there, there's, there's going to be consequences. But if you do turn from your sins and you obey my law and you keep my commandments, there's going to be blessings for you. And it's pretty much the whole Old Testament is obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings discipline. Back and forth and back and forth. But be careful. Lest, lest we point our fingers at the people of Israel and say, man, they were just so wishy-washy. They were so unstable. They were so just flippy-floppy, back and forth. They couldn't make up their minds. Beloved, consider your own heart. That's exactly what my heart does. And I'm, I'm post-Christ. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm after. I, I have the whole word at my disposal. I, I know I'm saved, and I'm being sanctified, and I'm justified, and I still struggle with that. Right? My heart is here, there, and everywhere. I have to constantly be informing it with Scripture to keep it on track. So, keep that in mind. Um, so, repent. So, 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 John the Baptist's message here is extremely clear. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the content of his message. And now we see in verse 3 the consistency of John's message. Just like a good graduated seminary student, my three points here are alliterated. We've had the context, we have the content, and now, verse 3, the consistency of John's message. But what is it consistent with? Well, let's read verse 3 again. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Beloved, I, I don't need to spend too much time proving to you that John the Baptist uh, was the promised one. He was the forerunner. He was the one who came in the spirit of Elijah to be the forerunner for Christ. But let me just encourage you with a couple of Old Testament passages that do speak to this. Okay, I, I want to just encourage you and just remind you that, that John the Baptist was, was, uh, was the second to last, really Jesus being the last in, in a very long line of Old Testament prophecy that's being fulfilled even as he's saying it. Okay, Malachi 3, verses 1 and 2 says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can, who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? Isaiah fifty-seven fourteen, And it shall be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. Psalm 68, verse 4, sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts, his name is the Lord, exult before him. And finally, Isaiah 49, 11, and I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. I do a lot of driving for my job, and... As I'm driving, if I've already taken care of the phone calls I have to make and I've already let my bride know I'm coming home and we know what's for dinner and I've taken care of everything that I'm allowed to as I drive, I, I like to just kind of drive in silence. I, I enjoy the sound of the road. I enjoy the sound of my engine. I enjoy the sights around me as I go. And one thing that I, I, I would love to learn more about is how roads were made here in California. Because if you think about it, it would have taken a very long time. It would have taken a lot of energy, a lot of manpower, a lot of materials and tools and dynamite. Uh, going straight up a hill and then straight back down, it's just, just, it's just amazing to me. But the roads here in California, as straight as they might be and as flat as they might be and as, as uh, straight of a path, it doesn't even come close to comparing 
how straight and flat and perfect the roads will be when the Lord Jesus comes back again. It's important to know that in the context of of all of these Old Testament passages, there is an immediate fulfillment of these passages. When the people of Israel were taken into captivity, the Lord spoke through the prophet Isaiah, and we're going to get into this in in one moment, but in, in chapter 40, the book of Isaiah takes a very sharp turn. Isaiah, the, the whole book of Isaiah, basically the first 39 chapters, covers the wickedness and the sin of both the kingdom of Israel and Judah. And essentially because of that sin, they have to be punished. And judgment was upon them, and they had to go into, into captivity. And the, the issues that, that had to be dealt with, the, the, the reason for judgment... Um, was, was too much to bring here tonight. But essentially, the, the judgment that had to be done was going to be very, very swift and very, very severe and very, very painful. And this brought great grief to the people of Israel. They knew they had sinned, and they knew that judgment was coming, and there was nothing that they could do about it. But Isaiah chapter 40 takes a very abrupt turn. It shifts so abruptly, you get a, a, a little bit of, of biblical whiplash, if you will, and all of a sudden, it changes from this, this, uh, this uh, theme of, of judgment and woe and, and burden and terror and gnashing of teeth and evil and darkness and war and rumors of war. And it changes to a theme of comfort. So rather than focusing on visions and burdens and woes and wars, the prophet then switches to a theme of worship. This is really, really interesting. So in Isaiah chapter 40, where it begins with comfort... Comfort ye my people, that was a, in context, that was a, a, a very comforting passage to the people of Israel who were about to go into judgment, who were already in judgment, and the Lord says, listen, you're under judgment, and, and, and this is just judgment for you, but let me tell you that there is hope coming for you. You will be returned to the land. Your Messiah is coming, and that was many centuries later, but essentially, Comfort ye, my people. The judgment is here. It's painful. But I want to let you know it's not going to last forever. In fact, it's going to last 70 years total. And then I will bring you back. And that would have brought, as much as the first 39 chapters would have brought just great woe and and despair and grief to the people, Isaiah chapter 40, when it starts off with comfort, comfort, my people, would have been something that would have brought great comfort and great solace to the people who were already in great distress. So why am I saying all of this? What do California roads have to do with Isaiah and Matthew chapter 3? Well, part of all this prophecy is, is, the, is the looking forward to the Messiah. And so Isaiah chapter 40 is saying, Comfort ye, my people. You're in judgment. Comfort is coming. Make straight a path for the Lord. John the Baptist is actually quoting Isaiah chapter 40. And he's saying... Hey, hey everybody, remember when Isaiah wrote something very, very comforting to those who were in exile? And remember how how that prophecy was fulfilled? They they actually were brought back to 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 the land of Israel. Remember all that? And there actually was some comfort. And we've been waiting for many, many centuries since then. Do you remember all that? Well, guess what, everybody? The Messiah is here. The Messiah is imminent. He's here. He's coming. The Lamb of God. In fact, it was right after our passage in Matthew 3.13 where Jesus himself comes to be baptized. So John the Baptist is not only a forerunner for the Messiah, he's also a, a herald of hope to the people. They have been waiting centuries, centuries for the ultimate comfort. They've gotten the initial comfort. We were, we, we, we were in exile and now we're back in the land. But where's the Messiah? I don't understand. How come only part of it was fulfilled? And John says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. In fact, his own words are a fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied. And he says, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. So again, what does it have to do with with me driving in my truck, looking at California roads? As I drive on California roads and as I see very, very straight roads and and sometimes curvy roads, I'm just reminded of the fact that, that spiritually speaking, even topographically speaking and even geographically speaking, all of those roads that are, that are sort, of, sort of good, they're, they're, they're sort of straight and they're, and, they're, and they're sort of flat, everything is going to be made 
100% flat, 100% even. And, and I, what I want to do tonight is focus on the spiritual ramifications of that. What does it mean that the Messiah, well, for us, has already come, right? And what does it mean that he's coming again? And what does that, how does that impact us spiritually tonight in terms of repentance? As we examine our own hearts, as we look at this passage of Scripture, what, where is this going to bring us, essentially? Okay? Does that make sense? California Roads, Isaiah, and now we're back to Matthew. It just kind of all comes together for me, at least. So we have now the context, the content, and the consistency of John's message. His message is consistent with Old Testament prophecy. He is fulfilling prophecy even as he's speaking. And, in fact, the one of whom he is speaking is going to fulfill the rest of the prophecies, and John is fulfilling his mission. Matthew's theme, again, is that Jesus is the king, and and his theme is going to be uh, throughout this whole book. I wish I could just preach the whole book to you, but that would take probably a couple of years. So now we move into our second section under the heading of what is true repentance. We kind of look at the evidence of true repentance. What was the impact of John's message on the people with him? And now we look at verse 4. We look at verse 4. We're going to go back now to John's connection with Elijah and just draw some parallels there. So, verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Remember, in, uh, in Malachi, it says that, that the Lord was going to send, uh, send a man in the spirit of Elijah. It's interesting not only that John's message mirrors that of Elijah, but also the way he's dressed. I think it's really interesting, the parallels there. This is a little, a little interesting little story from the Old Testament that you may not be very familiar with, as I was not before I studied this. In 2 Kings 1, verse 8, King Ahaziah is injured from a fall in his house. He inquires from a false god about whether he will recover. Bad idea, right? And a prophet, an unknown, unnamed prophet, intercepts the messenger and gives the true message of prophecy from the Lord. So the king is not doing the right thing, inquiring of a false prophet and a false god, and a true prophet intercepts his messenger and gives him the real message. Okay? When the messengers return to their king, he asks, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? Right? The king's all all confused. I've fallen. I'm hurting. Am I going to survive? Wait a minute. My messenger was intercepted? Like, who, who was it who talked to you? Right? They answered him, well, he, he wore a garment of hair and with a belt of leather about his waist. And obviously I wasn't there, but I can imagine that King Ahaziah's face would have changed. His countenance would have lowered, and he would have been all of a sudden very fearful because he knew exactly who that man was. That man was Elijah, Elijah the Tishbite. So Elijah must have been known not only by his message, but also what he wore. And I guess he was known as the man who wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather about his waist. It's just an interesting, sort of a sad for Ahaziah story, but also kind of comical that Elijah was so well known simply because of the things that he wore. Similar to the way that I'm well known for the things that I wear. And my family are always like, no, please don't, please don't. And um, so I'm going to leave that there. And so John the Baptist is here in the spirit of Elijah. He's wearing some of the very similar things that Elijah wore. He's eating even very similar food, locusts and wild honey. It's just interesting. There's an interesting parallel there with John the Baptist and Elijah. That's verse 4. Now verse 5 is, let's look now again at the crowd's connection to this Old Testament imagery. Old Testament imagery of the crowd being in the wilderness. This is very, very interesting. Verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. Let's stop right there. Remember, he's in the wilderness. They have to go out to him to meet him there. Why is that significant? Here it is. The people went back out into the wilderness to see John and repent and be baptized. This is poignant imagery given their history as a people in the wilderness. They have a lot of experience with the wilderness, both good and bad. In the same way that the Lord took them through the wilderness for 40 years as a consequence of failing to trust in his provision of the promised land to them, so also 
This is important. So also the Lord brought John the Baptist into the wilderness as his instrument to lead his people toward repentance and the preparing of their hearts for the coming of the king. Isn't that interesting? I had never really noticed that whole connection until I was studying for this passage. It's, it's just an interesting parallel, if you will. The Bible is full of parallels, and there's, there's foreshadowings, and there's, and there's prophecies, and all of a sudden it's all coming together, and John is in the wilderness, and they're going out there to meet him, and they're hearing a message of repentance. How appropriate. How appropriate. That is the parallel between the crowd and the Old Testament. And finally, this is the most encouraging verse of this whole section. Verse 6. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him. They heard his message. These are people who, for centuries now, generation after generation, they have, uh, they have been reading their, 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 their Pentateuch. They've been reading the prophets. They're waiting for their Messiah. And a man who looks a whole lot like Elijah, with a very similar message, is in the wilderness, beckoning them to join him and to hear his message. And they go out to him. And how do they respond? Well, they respond rightly. Many respond rightly by being baptized in the River Jordan and confessing their sins. Notice that confession of sins has always been, this is nothing new, confession of sins has always been an integral part of the worship for the people of Israel. If you look back in the Old Testament, chapter after chapter, every, every single worship service in the Old Testament is the bringing of sacrifices, the confessing of sins, the killing of the animals, the covering of their sin, and then they go back home. And they do this Every week, every month, every year, there's different cycles, different festivals, different uh, different, different fe- festivals that are that are that are seen and that are that are um, partaken in, and so many are baptized, many are confessing their sins, and and those people are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. That's the proper response when you hear a message of repentance. You need to repent, <laughs> and repent rightly. Repent in a way that is genuine, public, true. In a way that is honoring to the Lord, when, when, when you're confessing, I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. The sacrificial system that we've been using is only a covering for my sin. There has to be blood, and you say the Messiah is here. I believe you. Where is he? I cannot wait to see him. I cannot wait to hear his message. And I believe that you have been sent, John, to prepare the way. I just love it. So many people were baptized, confessing their sins, obeying the Lord's laws, Preparing their hearts. That's the the proper and appropriate response to the message of repentance. And so in these first six verses, we have seen what true repentance looks like. We've seen the the context of his message, the content, his consistency with Old Testament prophecy. We see very uh, very many parallels with the crowd uh, to the Old Testament uh, wilderness imagery, with John to Elijah, and the result is that they're properly confessing their sins and being baptized. That's the first six verses. The next six verses, verses 7 through 12, we're going to be looking at what pseudo-repentance looks like, what false repentance is, and how we can be on guard for it. Verse 7, But when he, that's John the Baptist, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I, I struggled for a long time to understand what he was talking about. Is he making fun of them? Is, he, uh, is this kind of a special call to repentance for them? And I found a very, very helpful sort of a rephrasing of what John is saying. It was very, very helpful to me. Here it is. Here is his rebuke restated. You generations of poisonous snakes... Who warned you to flee the coming wrath and come for baptism when, in fact, you show no signs of repentance? Let that sink in for a second. John knows exactly what they're doing. They're showing up for for baptism as well. They're showing up. They have all their tassels and their robes and everything like that. They're making a show again. Now, fortunately, many of them actually would be genuinely saved and genuinely repent. Nicodemus is an example. And there were many, many more. Uh, even, even Paul later uh, was a, a, a former Pharisee who was saved, as we know. But many of them weren't. So the problem wasn't that they were there. In fact, 
The problem was that they were there and that they had no intention to actually repent. They were merely making a show. That's why John the Baptist rebukes them. Why are you here? Why are you even here? You're, you're not intending to actually repent. So why even make a show of something that's not actually happening on the inside? It's just, you're just whitewashing the tomb again. What's, what's the point here, guys? Right? And no doubt they were flustered by that and maybe even embarrassed by that. But, but, but think about it. What was the source of the Pharisees and Sadducees' power over the people of Israel? What was it? The perception that they were following the law, that they actually knew the scriptures, that they actually knew what they were talking about. That was the source of their power. So if, they, if none of them got baptized by a man claiming to be from God, they're also claiming to be from God, or at least commissioned by God to be the shepherds of the church, or excuse me, of the, of the temple and of the people of Israel. So in other words, if they don't get baptized, they risk losing all of their power. And so they have to continue the lie. They have to maintain the falsehood. They have to maintain the hypocrisy. Otherwise, everyone who they're supposed to be shepherding is going to say, hey, we all got baptized. How come you didn't? Right? How, how would that work? Well, they would lose all their power and they'd lose all their credibility and they wouldn't have anything left. So they have to maintain their hypocrisy to maintain a certain sense of perceived sway or power over these people. They did not come to be baptized, but only to make an appearance of repentance, to make a show. That's what's so tragic about this group of, of people, this group of Pharisees and Sadducees, is that they were there to make a show. They were there to pseudo-repent, to make a show of it, but to not actually repent inside. That's what's so tragic. And so in verse 8, the only thing that John wants to share with them, because obviously they need the truth too. They may be more than most, right? What does John say? He rebukes them. And then in verse 8, what does he say? He reminds them of where they should be. Verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Literally, make the fruit. Hey, you claim to be truly repentant. You're making a show of baptism. If you really are repentant, then show us the fruit. The fruit is going to to reveal what kind of tree you really are. What does it mean to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Well, simply that your life radiates outwardly what is genuinely happening inwardly. If you're a tree that wants to produce good fruit, but your tree is bad or you are a bad tree, there's there's no way you can make good fruit. The fruit's going to reveal who you really, really are. That's the frightening part of it. A good tree will be characterized by good fruit. Obviously, no tree is perfect, right? Good trees still produce bad fruit. I know my tree does. Good trees do occasionally produce bad fruit. Sanctification is ongoing. We haven't made it yet. We're not in heaven yet. We don't have resurrected bodies yet. We haven't uh, attained uh, perfection yet, and we won't until we die and we go to heaven. And even then, man, we are still human, right? We're being renewed day by day. A bad tree is obviously going to be characterized by bad fruit. And that's why we say you will know a tree by its fruit. Matthew 7, 15 through 20 says this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Or figs from thistles? No. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And John's going to get into that. A warning to these pseudo-repenters. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. That's verse 8. The coming of God's reign demands repentance, or it brings judgment as... John is going to explain to them. And he even anticipates their rebuttal. He says, ah, no, 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 no. I don't want to hear it, okay? I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, oh, but you see, Abraham is our father, right? Hmm, really? Really? You, you really actually want to pull that card? You actually want to play that card? Really? Here we go. This is what he says. 
Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, right? For I tell you, God is able from these stones, these rocks, these pebbles, pebbles are worth nothing, from these rocks to raise up children for Abraham. There's actually a pun there. The word children in both Hebrew and Aramaic, the words for children and stones, sound very similar. And so John is sort of using a pun here to say, you're saying that you're the children of Abraham? Well, guess what? God can make children, real children, from these rocks. He doesn't need you to fulfill his ministry and his mission to his people. Ordinary stones will suffice. In other words, no, no need for the pillars or the big rocks of the patriarchs and all their merits, right? And we know Abraham wasn't perfect either. It's just folly to, to say, well, do you know who my dad is? Or do you know who my grandpa is? But really? It doesn't, it doesn't have any bearing upon your spiritual state. It has zero bearing on that. So be careful. Be careful. Not only does John rebuke the self-righteousness of these leaders, but he also implies that participation in the kingdom results only from grace, and it actually expands the borders of God's people beyond mere ethnic frontiers. This is a foreshadowing of what the apostles would, would experience, when all of a sudden they realize that, that the gospel isn't just for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles, for people like me. I'm a Gentile. Praise the Lord. In fact, in Matthew 8, 10 through 12, this is Jesus' interaction. This is later, of course, but this is Jesus' interaction in healing the centurion's servant. Listen to what Jesus says to a Gentile mere five chapters after uh, John the Baptist says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, it doesn't matter if Abraham is your father, the Lord can raise children from these stones. Matthew 8, 10 through 12, Jesus says to the centurion, after he had just healed his servant, he says, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and, get this, recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Where? In the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so John the Baptist is even giving a little bit of a, of a preview of, guess what, guys? The gospel is not just for the Jews. It's going to be for everyone. And that would have naturally been very frustrating to the Pharisees and Sadducees who wanted to maintain, what was it? Control. We're the ones who know. We're the ones who are keeping the law. In fact, here's 613 extra things you've got to keep on top of because otherwise you really can't go to heaven, right? All, all of that self-righteousness, all of that. And so John the Baptist now says in verse 10, the urgency is there. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There's an urgency there. So verses 7 through 10 have been a warning against false repentance. He's, he's taking the time. He loves their souls, and he wants them to hear the truth, just like he has other people hearing the truth, and he desperately wants them to respond. And don't get me wrong, many did. Many, many did. Many Pharisees and Sadducees responded truly and repented genuinely in faith to John's message and ultimately bowed the knee to Christ himself. They knew exactly who Jesus was. There, there's, there's no doubt about that. They knew exactly who he was. He was from God, and, and, and they knew that. And that was a threat to them. And yet the Lord um, stooped to save them even as they had been terrible shepherds for his flock. Isn't that just a, an incredible example of his grace? Even the shepherds who were actually ravenous wolves covered in sheep's clothing, the Lord says, oh, I need to save them too. They need the truth just as, the, just as their, their own sheep do. His grace and his mercy abounds. So that's the end of verse 10. And now our, our final section here, our, our second part of, of this look into pseudo-repentance. Let's look now at the consequences. We've seen the message of true repentance. We've seen the evidence of true repentance. We've seen now a warning against false repentance. And our last section here is the consequences of false repentance. What are the consequences? And what will it mean for John's hearers and what will it mean for us? Verse 11. 
John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Some translations say, not worthy to untie, right? I guess you'd have to untie them first, and then you can carry them, right? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John here is is simply contrasting and, and defining and clarifying his role in this redemption story. John says, listen, I'm the forerunner. The king is coming. He's way mightier than I am. I'm not even worthy to untie or carry the dirtiest part of his, of his garment and of, of his raiment. The things that he wears. I'm not even worthy to touch his sandals. Right? Which was the lowest of the low. And John there is again just properly and, and, and humbly uh, keeping himself low. Making himself decrease so that the Lord himself can increase. He's fulfilling his ministry. And John simply clarifies that his baptism is not salvific. His baptism cannot save you. His baptism will not save you. He's merely explaining that his baptism, that he has been commissioned by Yahweh himself to bring to the people of Israel, is merely preparatory. It's merely preparatory. No doubt there were hundreds, maybe even thousands of people who were baptized under John's ministry and then later, when they became Christians, were then rebaptized. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. That's exactly what they were supposed to do. A preparatory baptism, and then a baptism after salvation, as a, as a public declaration of, of who they were. New creations in Christ, all of that. Right? It's interesting. Um, I, 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 too, have been baptized twice, but not for this reason. I was baptized twice because the first time I was baptized, I wasn't a believer. I was 13 years old. I knew I wasn't a believer. And my parents uh, loved me, and boy, they, they have cared for my soul my, all my 30 years. Um, I think they hoped I was a believer, and I think I had deceived them sufficiently to the point where they were like, I think, I think he is. Maybe, maybe this will really do it for him, right? And that was my struggle growing up. Ever since I was uh, six, when I made sort of a profession of, of faith, but truly, just between you and me, I was just tired of being disciplined. And I was that kid. I would get disciplined a lot, and I needed it. And I'm so thankful that my parents were so faithful in that. But from my profession at age 6 to my baptism at age 13, I wasn't a believer. And I knew I wasn't. And so I was baptized, and, and shame on me. Shame on me for even thinking about baptism before being a Christian. I think I was hoping it would maybe change me, or it would sort of put me in the right direction, or maybe this would like finally be it, where now I have to be a Christian, right? Those are all just foolishness and lies. So uh, it was in the spring of 2015, uh, Thousand Oaks Bible Church had just been planted, and we had our first baptismal service, and Lance was asking who wanted to be baptized. And we're talking about it, and Lance says something like, you know, I just, I just want to be baptized again. And seeing his humility there, and and seeing how, how honest he was, and he just, he just wanted to, to be a, an example to the rest of us of what it meant to be truly baptized. And so I said, you know, Dad, I, I know I wasn't a believer when I was baptized, and I really do need to get rebaptized. And so my father-in-law, who was only my father-in-law for about three months at that point, he got to rebaptize me along with many of our siblings. Um, just a sweet moment where I knew I was saved, and it was sweet. And there was no more hypocrisy, and there was no more playing around, and no more posing, and no more playing games, where it was, I know I'm saved now. And it's purely and surely by the grace of the Lord. And it's just such, such a joy. So when I think about these people who are getting baptized, that's, that's what I always think about. Because basically when I was 13, I, I was the Pharisee slash Sadducee who was making a show of, of false repentance. And then when I was 25... Then I was saved, and, and by the Lord's grace, I actually, it's almost like I had a second chance. It's, it's, it's purely by the Lord's grace that I was even saved at all. The Lord could have snuffed me out, and he would have been <laughs> completely justified in doing so. And yet, just giving me a chance to get baptized again after salvation, that's just, just pure grace and mercy. And so, um, yes, I, I was that Pharisee, Sadducee, showing up. Because I had to continue the lie. I had to perpetuate the hypocrisy. Otherwise, people would think ill of me. Talk about fear of man, right? And yet, 
um, the Lord gave me a second chance after salvation to actually be baptized genuinely, uh, and that's just such a joy in my heart to have that. So, I got a little lost there. (laughs) John's baptism is preparation for repentance, whereas he's contrasting Jesus' baptism as fulfillment of purification. Notice in verse 12, this is just, uh, this is the, the weight of the seriousness of what he's talking about. Water being preparation and repentance, fire being purification and judgment. He's talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees still, and he says this in verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It says winnowing fork. It's not a fork. It's a shovel. It's a pitchfork. It is a deadly weapon if you need it to be. It is a terrifying image of the wheat and the chaff being together in the threshing room. And the Lord himself will use his his pitchfork, his winnowing, shovely fork tool to examine, inspect, and separate the wheat and the chaff. The winnowing fork tossed both wheat and chaff into the air, and the hot desert wind in the land of Israel would blow the chaff away. Any remaining chaff was then gathered and burned for heat or for cooking. I, Growing up in Bangladesh, over by India, I saw a very similar thing to this, but it was with rice. And they would take the rice, they would have harvested it, and now it's millions of little grains of rice with the husk still on it. And where would they go? they go to the highest place around, which was about six feet above sea level. That was the highest place. Bangladesh is very, very flat, unlike California. That's why I'm so interested in mountains. I've never seen them before. So they would take it to the highest place they could, the windiest spot, and they would take this, and having, having ground it up already, they would then do this with a big, flat, frisbee-looking thing, and they would just go, and the wind would take the chaff, and it would blow it, and for days during harvest season, which was between three and six times a year, for days, the air was full of Sort of like snow. <laughs> it was dry chaff. It gets in your eyes. and you, Oh, oh, I got more stuff in my eyes, right? Like, like, a, like a dusty desert. And I, I have that image in my mind as I think about this. The chaff doesn't stand a chance. It's gone. It's, it's much lighter than those heavier, denser particles of edible rice grain or wheat grain, right? The NASB says that the Lord Jesus will actually thoroughly clear his threshing floor. Not one piece of chaff will be left, and not one grain of wheat will be left. It will be thoroughly separated, properly identified for what it is, and put in its right place, and then either a source of blessing and enjoyment in food, or a source of heat and, for our own image, judgment and and destruction, right? And so John is saying this, and, and, and he's saying this to the Pharisees and Sadducees, and yes, they knew exactly who he was talking to. They knew he was talking to them. It's pretty clear from Scripture that most of the Pharisees and Sadducees understood that they were the chaff. It was very, very clear to them, and therefore in complete rejection of both John and Jesus. And yet, they still desired to be perceived by the people as wheat, The chaff always wants to be desired, always wants to be perceived as wheat. And yet, who they truly are will be found out. There's there's no way around it. Make no mistake, no matter what a person appears to be or makes himself out to be or says they are or acts in such a way as to deceive everyone else about their true identity, their, their true spiritual nature, their true spiritual state, In the end, the true wheat will be separated from the false chaff. Chaff might be able to masquerade as wheat for a time, but once that threshing floor is cleared and the separation is underway, there is no hope for that chaff. It will be removed from the wheat, identified for what it is, and burned with fire inextinguishable. This is heavy stuff. This is heavy stuff. We've seen in verses 1 through 6, the the evidence... And the message of true repentance and and what the proper response to a message of repentance is in verse 6. Confess your sins and be baptized. And yet we see with frightening, with a a, a frightening change here, a, a frightening contrast. 
the reality of the fact that, that, that good trees will produce good fruit and bad trees will produce bad fruit and the chaff will be separated from the wheat and everything will be laid bare and everything will be made clear in the end. There's, there's, no, there's no mistaking that. And so as we close, I want us to be thinking about where do we go from here? We've talked about what repentance is. We have looked at the message and the evidence of true repentance and the warning and the consequences against false repentance or pseudo-repentance. So what do we do with this? Do we close in prayer, have a nice night, see you all next time? No. Let's, let's, let's take a minute here. Let's, let's park on these themes for a minute. And let's, let's ask some hard questions of ourselves. How are we doing in the battle against hypocrisy? I told you a little bit about my testimony. I would say the biggest struggle I've had since getting saved nine, ten years ago, I don't have a day for you, but nine or ten years ago, is that battle against hypocrisy. I was a hypocrite for 20 years. So the last ten years have been a struggle against the things I was doing before, right? In fact, digging down even deeper, though I made a profession of faith very, very clearly when I was about 19, 20 years old, I got into the Word, and I started going back to church. I was a, I was a missionary kid, and so I you know, had to tell a lot of people that for my entire time overseas as a missionary kid, I wasn't saved. That was hard to do. I have a big fear of man problem. And, um, and so one of the things I struggled with early on was not only adding all the things that I was supposed to be doing, reading my Bible and praying and going to church and singing the songs and, and really fighting that good fight, right? But also turning from my sin, really repenting from what I had been doing and what my flesh wanted and, and what was uh, scintillating to me and what my, what, all, all the stuff that, that sin offered to me. So turning from my sin was, was actually very difficult to having gone one way for 20 years and then to attempt that 180 and go the other way. That was hard. Repenting from my sin, it was hard. It's a hard Daily thing, repenting. And it has to be daily. So that's why I ask us, how are we doing in our battle against hypocrisy? Obviously, we know what hypocrisy is, living a double life, saying one thing, doing another, living one way in public, living another way in private. Do we live one way in private and a whole other way in public? Do we do that? So that others marvel at how godly we are, right? Oh, I always go to Sunday night church. Always. Mm, that's great. Where's your heart? <laughs> Do we delight more in the accolades of other people more than the approval and favor of the one who will judge us rightly in the end? In the end, all of the accolades, all the praise we receive from other fallen people like ourselves will be worthless if we ourselves are chaff that are separated from God and burned in an unquenchable fire. It's just not, it doesn't mean anything. It's just... Just one piece of chaff talking to another piece of chaff. Hey, how you doing? I'm great. I'm a piece of wheat. Oh, you are. Me too. That's great. We're going to glory. Uh-oh. Maybe we should be looking at our hearts. Maybe we should be asking ourselves some hard questions. Maybe we should stop playing around because eternity is on the line. Eternity is at stake. If we prepare our hearts for worship on Sundays, and if we're honest with ourselves, some of us, me first and foremost, Struggle with that on a weekly basis. I know I need to prepare my heart for worship on Sundays. I don't do it very well. Sometimes, sometimes I'm, I'm right in the middle of it while we're singing our third song. Oh man, my heart is not where it needs to be. I need the Lord here. I, I have to repent of something even right now before my heart uh, can, be, can be clean and, and ready and open. I love what, what Joel said a few weeks ago where he uh, encouraged us to not sing with lies. Right? Don't, don't sing with lies. As we're singing these songs, can confess that sin and, and repent from it because, because eternity is at stake and we're in a worship service. What we're supposed to be responding as and it, the way we're supposed to be responding to messages of repentance is by repenting right then and there. Lord, Lord, I confess my sin to you. I, I know you died on the cross for my sin. I, I, I needed that death. There was no way that I could atone for myself. I need that forgiveness, and Lord, help me to repent from that sin every single day. So if we prepare our hearts for worship on Sundays, and for many of us, myself first and foremost, very inconsistently, how much more should we be preparing our hearts 
for the imminent second coming of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that for a minute. Do we seriously ponder the blessings of daily repentance and the grave consequences of rampant hypocrisy and and habitual rejection of Jesus? When we say one thing and live one way in public and we're doing something completely different in private, aren't we denying what Jesus has done for us in the first place? Aren't we spitting in his face? Aren't we making a mockery of it? Yes, we are. Are we repenting daily, hourly, even minute by minute of our sin? What kind of fruit are we bearing? Are we good trees that produce mostly good fruit by the grace of the Lord, but sometimes we produce bad fruit too? That's, that's why we're being sanctified. We haven't, we haven't reached it yet. We haven't made it. Or are we diseased trees that produce only bad fruit? And even the, the fruit that looks good is really just rotten on the inside. You just can't see it. These are the kind of questions that we need to be asking ourselves. And this is why I love passages like Matthew chapter 3. An intro to John the Baptist's ministry. He's uh, being an example to us. He, he's even fulfilling prophecy. And the people are responding rightly. And he gives a warning to those who are not. Uh, again, take, take heart. Uh, many Pharisees and Sadducees did come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Um, but they were few. And they were far between. And we can even see in, in verse 13 where Jesus immediately comes on the scene after this and then he's baptized and then his ministry begins. I, I just love John the Baptist. He's so true. He's so faithful. He's so clear and concise. He fulfills his ministry. He does what he's supposed to do. And he decreases while the Lord himself increases. And it's, it's just such a, a poignant reminder to us to constantly be considering what it means to be truly repentant and to battle against hypocrisy, and to be honest with ourselves, and to be very, very careful to look at what Scripture says about us, and to act accordingly, to not be self-deceived, and and to not be uh, lost in a cycle of, yes, I'm a Christian, and I'm here on Sundays, and I I definitely, yep, wait a minute, Maybe I'm not even saved. I don't, I don't know where I'm at. I, my life is not matching up with what Scripture tells me it should be matching up with. And, and that's where I was when I was 20 years old. I had been playing this game for a long, long time. And then my parents finally said, Son, we love you so much. And we love you too much to let you keep on playing this game. So we'd like you to be honest. We'd like you to be an honest pagan or an honest Christian. And when they said that, my whole world came undone. Because that's when I knew that the gig was up. And I couldn't fool anybody anymore. If my parents knew, that meant that my friends knew. And my family pretty much knew. And I'm just so thankful for the men and women in my life who, who confronted me very patiently, very carefully with, with the word of God saying, Shane, what you're saying is not matching up with what we're seeing. So what does that say about you? And that's when I had to come to grips with that. I'm so thankful for that. And it's been a battle against hypocrisy ever since. And it will be a lifelong battle against hypocrisy. And so what is the key? What is the, what is the way out? How do you get out of that cycle of, I have to keep these, these errors. I, I, I have to keep up these, these pretenses. I, I have to keep on saying the same things and doing the same things. Because if not, if I break the cycle, it's going to be embarrassing. What if I tell people I haven't been saved this whole time? Beloved, I had to do it. It didn't take very long. I just just told everybody. And it was the most joyous day of my life where I was able to say, Brother, I, I, I hate to tell you this, but I wasn't saved that whole time. And oftentimes the more perceptive ones would say, I knew. I love you, but I knew. It, it was pretty clear to me because you would say one thing and do something entirely different. And so I'm thankful for friends like that. I'm thankful for my parents who loved me enough, like I said, to, to speak truth to me and, and to really bring the scripture to bear. And like I said, it's been a battle for repentance ever since. And that's what it needs to be. That's what it has to be. We can't just, you know, once a year hear the sermon about repentance and like, oh yeah, I should be thinking about that sometimes, right? That's not how it needs to be. This needs to be a daily thing, an hourly thing, uh, a, a, a earnest pleading with the Lord in prayer, saying, Lord, you have saved me. 
I'm a sinner. I'm not enslaved by sin, but boy, I sure do love it. Help me to turn from my sin hourly, daily, minute by minute, moment by moment. Help me to turn from my sin. Lord, I know that you died on the cross and paid for all the sins I have ever committed and will ever commit. And yet I need your grace and mercy and I need your strength to fight. First of all, to get up in the morning. Second of all, to put on the armor of God to be ready to fight. And third, to actually get out on the battlefield and start swinging your sword. And start extinguishing those darts. And start protecting your head with the helmet of salvation. And start, uh, start, start fighting the good fight. That's, that's what we need to be doing. This is a battle. This is a daily battle. And that's the reality of it. So I, I, I trust this was encouraging to you, as it was to me, just a, a really important and necessary and timely warning and also encouragement. Brothers and sisters, if, if you are who you say you are, press on. Press on. Be encouraged. The, the Lord Jesus has, has died for you, and he has paid for your sins, and, and you are free. You are free to now be his slave. So press on in that fight. He's given you everything you need. His word, the armor of God, he's given you the church, he's given you brothers and sisters to surround you with, to encourage you, and to hold you up when you need to be held up, and and maybe to be exhorted sometimes when you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. So thank God for those people. Beloved, if there are uh, maybe some among you who are not genuinely saved, take this warning to heart. It's real. It's, It's not a joke. Eternity's on the line. And if maybe you are someone like who I was when I was 20 years old, caught and found out in my sin, man, I'm just so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that the Lord um, was able to, to save me. And, man, just what a, what a grace in my life. It, nothing of myself was, was, even, was even worth a, a small consideration of saving. Nothing that I had to offer. I, I deserved eternal judgment and punishment and to be snuffed out in an instant. Maybe even before I was even born, that's what I would have deserved. And yet the Lord in his grace and mercy saved me. And the Lord in his grace and mercy wants to save you as well. So if you are a genuine sheep, press on. If you're a wolf in sheep's clothing, beware. Heed this warning. It's not a joke. It's very, very serious. And the consequences are eternal. So consider these things. And also, brothers and sisters, one more thing, and this is where I'll close. Let's encourage each other to repent of our sin. Let's encourage each other to constantly be looking to Scripture and to ask ourselves, is my life matching up with where I should be? Am I being sanctified? Am I railing against my sin? Am I struggling against my sin? Or am I giving into it over and over and over and over and over and over again? So think about those things. Take them to heart. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for how precise and sharp uh, it is, Lord. We know that uh, it has the ability to penetrate deep into our souls and, and bring that conviction that we need. And Lord, I'm, I'm just so grateful for the way that you pulled me up out of the pit of darkness that I was in, that pit of hypocrisy. And I I was that Pharisee. I was that Sadducee standing there on the banks of the Jordan uh, trying to make a show of repentance, trying to make a, a show of something and, and someone who I really wasn't on the inside. I, I was there to merely whitewash the tomb again, whereas inside was, was dead men's bones and filth and rottenness. And you knew that. And yet, Lord, thank you for saving me, and thank you for saving my brothers and sisters in this room, those who have genuinely turned and repented from their sin, Lord. We thank you that you have uh, given us everything we need for salvation. We thank you that you have given us your word to, to show us the way and to give us the light of your salvation. Lord, help us. We, we, we beg you, help us in our battle against hypocrisy. Help us to repent of the sins that so easily ensnare and entangle us on a daily basis. Lord, give us your grace and your mercy in those battles. Help us to put on that armor of God every single day. Help us to rail against our sin and to run to you for help and for strength and for wisdom from your word to help us to know how to extricate ourselves from those ensnarements. 
Lord. We beg of you. We ask of you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our brothers and sisters who come alongside us and who love us enough to say, your life is not matching up with who you say you are. We thank you for John's ministry. We thank you for his faithfulness. We thank you for the way that he fulfilled his ministry exactly the way he was supposed to, preparing the way for the Messiah. We thank you, Lord, that you did come to earth. You did walk among us. You did give us your word. You did fulfill your ministry. You did submit in obedience to your Father's will and died on that cross for my sin and for the sin of of every other person in the world whom you have chosen, for bearing the, the, the just punishment of our sin, sins that we have already committed, sins that we have yet to commit. The weight of that is just staggering. And yet, your Son the only one who has lived that one perfect life was able to bear that, to bear the judgment and, and bear the consequences and the punishment for our sin, and, and he did pay the price for us. And then he was buried, and then he rose on the third day, and now he sits at the right hand of God, preparing glory for those who believe in him and who have submitted to him as their Lord and Savior. Lord, when we are in the depths of despair, when we don't know where to turn, when we feel like the entanglements of sin are almost too much to bear, almost too much for us to get out of, Lord. We, we know that you have already won the battle. You have already won the war. Give us strength. Give us the ability to have our eyes opened and our hearts softened. And Lord, help us to repent every day, confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, so that we can be more and more made into the likeness of your Son. That's why it's called sanctification. It takes a long time. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for just a chance to open your word. And we thank you for the way that it penetrates our hearts and makes the way clear. And we pray for all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.